Jesus was tempted by Satan after 40 days of fasting, the first thing that he tempted him with was food. He said, you have the power to turn this stone into to bread. And Jesus replied to him, man does not live by bread alone, but from every word that precedes the mouth of God. And we're told the word of God has been given to us in, in a book that is 66 books combined, Bible meaning library. It took 1,400 years to write, 40 different authors, three different languages, and yet it is completely uh, authentic. It is true. There is no error, and it is uh, connected between Genesis and Revelation perfectly. Uh, the Old Testament is a mystery concealed. The New Testament is a mystery revealed. And so we have the, the, the beauty of God's Word that we can study today. Uh, we want to be Bible-based. And so what we are here to do is to study God's Word, to worship Him, so that then we can go out into our lives and reflect Him to our friends and family. And so we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The focus of 1 Corinthians 11 is how do we worship? What is, especially within our relationships between husbands and wives and families and how do these things work? And God, through Paul, gives some really direct and clear leadership there. And then also today we will be coming together to remember what Christ did on the cross, communion, the Lord's Supper. And so we're going to focus on the Lord's Supper, but I would encourage you to take that sermon-based study and to go ahead and look through the entire chapter because there's a lot of great information the Holy Spirit wants us to know and to live out, to understand who we are, why we're here, and what we're to be doing as we prepare for His return. And so as we look at communion, I don't know if there's been special communions in your life. I don't know if you've ever had an opportunity to where the Lord really has shown up in that experience of remembering and celebrating and really reflecting. And as I was reflecting on communion itself, it's a great reminder because we're told as often as you gather together to remember the cross, to remember the death, the burial, and the resurrection, that the, the bread broken for his body and the cup of his blood that is a new covenant or new commitment to us were to do this in remembrance. And I was thinking about why does he want us to remember? Because this is the one thing that we need to remember. This is the one thing out of all the things, uh, this is what he wants us to remember. This is the quintessential point of God's word. This is uh, the perfect God interacting with imperfect humans and allowing us to be in perfect relationship to him. And the only way that can happen is through the death, burial, resurrection. The communion of God and us comes when we recognize by his body and by his blood we can be saved when we confess and believe in both of those things, that he broke uh, himself, he willfully chose to die on a cross, and his blood was perfect, allowing for us to have eternal life. I, I pray that you've had a moment in your life where God really showed up as you took the time to remember that. For me, uh, there's a couple of instances that I can remember. I remember when I was in college, uh, we had a PhD doctor come and talk to us about all of the scientific aspects of a crucifixion, uh, asphyxiation, and all the things that happened to Christ as he was brutally beaten to the point that he was unrecognizable, and all of these things. And, and I can just remember as this doctor was kind of going through every little detail of what it meant for Christ to go to the cross, the Holy Spirit just stirred. It was so strong that I got emotional. I'm not really an overly emotional person, but at that moment, I teared up recognizing what Christ allowed himself to go through for me. That while I was in rebellion, while I was a sinner, he loved me enough to intentionally go to a cross, one of the most heinous and horrible deaths that a person can have. And yet he was will, willing and, and he 
uh, submitted to his father to go to the cross for us. And so that experience was uh, really the first experience in my life that I look back and I say, as I was considering the cross, I was considering what it meant for Christ to die, uh, that the, the scourging and his bodily uh, pain that he went through, and then the spiritual pain of his father uh, leaving him. My father, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God. And so we think about those elements, and hopefully you've had time to consider these things, and they're not just head knowledge, but they're heart knowledge, something that's meaningful and powerful and, and life-changing for you. Uh, if we go to the next slide, uh, the next opportunities for me, and when I was in college, we had an individual donate enough money for us to go to Israel, and so I was able to take the Lord's Supper on the Sea of Galilee. And uh, it was funny this morning because I was talking to the deacons, and we said, uh, some churches at the end of the service... They ask you to close in prayer. And do you know what all the people in the church do at the end of the service? They look down at the floor. They don't look at the pastor when he calls for uh, someone to help with prayer at the end of the service. Well, I'm going to call for a volunteer. Uh, this was the, the cup made from an olive tree. Uh, this was the communion cup that I was able to take. Um, it's not Indiana Jones style, if you're an Indiana Jones fan. Uh, and there's no, I'm not, I'm not showing you this because this in itself is sacred. Uh, but it does give us a visual of what Christ is talking about. And this actually did come from Israel. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call upon George Crone. I know we have multiple Georges, so I'm going to give a last name. He's going to come around. If you'd like to hold it or look at it, this is actually made uh, in Israel. And uh, we took communion together there uh, on the Sea of Galilee. And then uh, when I was a pastor in Virginia, we returned to Israel and uh, took communion at uh, one of the locations. There are two locations that they believe could be the tomb. Uh, this is the one that they believe uh, aligns with all the scripture. And I'm telling you, this is a powerful place. It's not a powerful place because it itself. It's a powerful place because Christ was there. Christ makes it special. Christ makes it a powerful location. And when I was there, the thing that really was the most interesting to me is we go there, you think as a tourist, most tourists are from the United States, most tourists are going to be speaking English, most tourists that are there are going to be uh, similar, but that was not the case. There were people from Africa, there were people from India, there were people from Taiwan, there were people from Australia, there were people from Ireland, there were people from all over the world, and actually uh, U.S., uh, citizens that were there uh, to see this site were, were, were the minority. And as we would come up to uh, where the tomb was, just hearing the singing, uh, there was a group singing of the resurrection of Christ and the good news that he has come to set us free. And the power of being at the tomb and hearing singing about the risen Savior. What a powerful moment. What a powerful uh, opportunity to observe that even today, 2,000 years later, you know, a lot of people will say, well, you were born in the United States and your parents are Christians. You're just, that's, you're just going to fall in line with them. There's nothing. But what they don't recognize is uh, Christianity started with 12 guys in the middle of nowhere with no communication. And yet today, people all over the planet recognize Christ. And some of the places, it's the hardest to be a believer. Some of the places on this planet, like China and India, where it is illegal to be a believer in Jesus Christ, they celebrate Christ even stronger than we do. I know in China they say, if you want to be a pastor, you've got to go to seminary. And when they say seminary, they mean jail. 
Because until you've really been persecuted, until you've really been tested and tried and, and you've sacrificed for the gospel, you haven't really been tested enough to be a leader. And so we see that this is a powerful event. There's no event like the resurrection of Christ. It has changed the entire world. Uh, many times people are shocked when I ask them what year it is, and they'll say 2023. I say, well, what happened 2,023 years ago that all of time is hinged on it? What happened that was so significant in the history of the world that somehow we would determine that before it and after it, it is the central of all time? as we measure it as human beings. That is significant. Almost everyone on this planet recognizes the year 2023. And yet why? Why do we recognize this historical time period? And as much as they try to get away from it and adding all these things to it, they still can't get around. It is in the year of our Lord Jesus Christ that this man from Galilee, actually Bethlehem, claimed to be God-made flesh that came to live a perfect life, die on a cross, resurrect, ascend into heaven, and proclaim, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is one way, Jesus Christ. And so this morning as we prepare to, to, to really interact together with this truth. Let's not take it lightly. Let's not take it for granted. This is an event that has changed all history. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Before this event, we were lost in our sin. Without this event, we would be separated from God eternally in hell. But because of this event that we remember the death, the breaking of the body, the shedding of the blood, that we have any hope today. And so this morning, as we dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 11, my question is, what does God want us to know about the Lord's Supper? Paul is writing here about uh, some specific aspects of the Lord's Supper, giving us some practical application, giving us some understanding of what we're to do and why we're to do it. And so we're going to study that together. We're going to ask the Lord to speak individually to all of us, and we're going to entune our spirits, um, not just our intellect, but our spirit to the Word of God that he would transform us into him as his image, that our, our minds would be renewed in him today. And so as we go together, let's pray and precede his word in prayer. Father God, you are holy and just. You are righteous. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Lord, we gather here in this room today, just like many all over the world will gather today to sing your praise, to lift up you as the Holy One, the one worthy of our voices, worthy of our singing, worthy of our lives. And Lord, we ask today as we worship you that you would guide our minds, guide our spirits. Uh, Lord, as we talk about something we've heard, most of us, most of our life, let it be fresh and new today, Lord, as you sent fresh manna uh, to the Hebrew people while they wandered. Lord, today we need fresh, uh, your fresh spirit renewed in our life a fresh understanding, a fresh, uh, passionate heart for you. Lord, we ask that you would take anything in us that would keep us from you, whether that is uh, unforgiveness or unrepented sin. Lord, I, we pray that we would confess that sin and, and that, Lord, today we would live in right relationship with you. Lord, I ask that you would guide us as we study your word, that we would not be led in astray, but that we would be uh, given absolutely the right directions to who you are and where you're leading us. Lord, we pray as, as we prepare for your return, we know it's very soon, Lord, as we prepare, help us to be faithful in our preparations. Help us not to deviate from the path 
Help us not to fall into sin. Help us not to get weary in doing good, but that, Lord, we would glorify you in all that we are every day until you return. Thank you for this book of 1 Corinthians. Thank you that those were faithful to pass it down so that we could have it to study today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Two contextual items for you to know before we we dive into the word. We need to understand Paul is writing to a church. This is a letter that we turned into a book and we put all the numbers in it uh, much later. So this was actually a letter. This was a letter, not an email. They didn't have email back then and it wasn't a text. Uh, This was a letter taken time where Paul let the Holy Spirit flow through him. What do you want me to say? What do you want me to write? And he wrote these things to the Corinth church. And we need to recognize that the Corinth church has a lot of similarities to us. There's a lot of similarities to that time and to that place. But some interesting notes for you as as we look at this is to recognize the Roman Empire did not see Christianity in, in a good light. It did not see Christianity as a good movement that was helping them. It actually saw it as an enemy in many ways they wanted to destroy. And one of the challenges they had was that they were listening uh, to some of the teachings that were going on in in the churches. And some of the teachings, uh, as they read from the book of John, or as they would focus in on on what John had written, and of course they wouldn't have the number in there, but in John chapter 6, they would be reading about Jesus interacting with the people. And uh, the people asked Jesus, well, our father, when Moses was leading us, gave us a sign. And that sign was manna, bread that would fall from heaven. And it was, it was sweet like honey. It was like a Krispy Kreme donut. And yet it wasn't fatty. It was perfect. It was the perfect nourishment for them to live off of. And they said, we had a sign. God gave us a sign. What is the sign you're going to give us, Jesus? What is the sign you're going to give us that we know you really are from God, that you really are the Messiah? And Jesus said, just like, and it wasn't Moses that gave you the manna, it was God who gave you the manna. My father gave you this manna. Just like he gave you the manna, he has given you me. I am the true manna. I am the true bread of life. He who is hunger or thirsty will hunger or thirst no more because I have showed up. I have came from heaven. I have come from the father and I have come to you that you may have life and have it more eternal. And he goes into detail because they say, how can this be? How can you be bread? How can we eat you? And he gets to a point where not just the skeptics, because there was a lot of skeptics. The Pharisees were skeptics. The Sadducees were definitely skeptics. But he had about a 100 disciples. People were following him. And he made this claim. He said, unless you eat my flesh and you drink my blood, you cannot be my disciple." He said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot be my disciple. And you know what happened? He turned, and many of them said, I cannot follow this teaching. I cannot follow him anymore. And it said that a a large number of disciples left and no longer followed Christ. And this is where Jesus says to Peter and to his 12, will you leave me too? And Peter says, where are we going to go? You are the only way. You're the only hope we have. And so as that teaching was being shared, as that teaching was being uh, used in all of the churches, especially here in Corinth, the Romans would get get, uh, news reports. Well, here's what they're teaching. They're teaching that uh, something about this fellow Jesus, and you got to eat his flesh and you got to drink his blood. And so actually the Roman leaders began to think that this Christian movement was a cannibalistic movement. They actually thought 
that there was cannibalism going on. And so it became illegal, interestingly enough, because of communion. Because they would gather and they would talk about someone's body being broken and eating the broken body and drinking the blood. And this information was returned to the Roman leaders and they thought, well, these people are, are cannibals, we need to stop them. And so this morning, uh, I want to deal with this one topic because I grew up in New England where all of my friends were Roman Catholic. I have a lot of friends that are Roman Catholic. Uh, I have participated in Mass before. I've, I've attended Catholic churches before. I understand there's a teaching called transubstantiation. How many of you have heard of transubstantiation? This is the teaching that the bread itself, and we can go to the next slide, actually becomes the body of Christ and that the juice actually or wine becomes the blood of Christ. And so this is where we would differ. If you're here today, you want to know one of the areas we differ from other uh, viewpoints is we do not hold that view. We do not hold the view that the bread literally becomes the flesh or that the, the juice literally becomes the blood. Because the distinction we want to make is the distinction between the spiritual and the physical. And that's a, that's a very important distinction. Because what we're doing today is symbolism of a spiritual truth. It's not a literal uh, understanding any physical truth. And so it's important to recognize contextually, even in our moment right now, as we come to the table, this is much more about your spirit than it is your physical body. This is much more about the eternal than the temporal. This is much more about uh, the coming judgment and the return of Christ than it is about any physical issue or any fleshly issue that any of us may have. Christ did not die to give us a better life here on earth. Christ did not die to make bad people good. Christ died to make spiritually dead people alive. And so when we come to communion, uh, it's even maybe more significant than it actually becoming flesh. This is a spiritual truth that you cannot hide. You see, we can hide from each other our thoughts because I can't see your thoughts. I don't know your thoughts. I can't, I can't know for certain your motivations. I can't know what your heart is. And so that's a spiritual thing that only God can see. And so when we come to this table, it's not about what's on the outside, the exterior. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you're like white tomb sepulchers. You look beautiful on the outside, but you're dry, dead bones on the inside. The outside of the cup is not what you are to worry about. The physical, the flesh, has already been dealt with at the cross. Now we need to start looking at the heart, the spiritual, the inward. And so the context here, as we study what Paul is teaching us, is we recognize that this has much more to do with your eternal soul, the thing that will be in existence billions and billions, infinitely in, in, in terms of years from now. This is the thing about you that will never go away. And that's why it's so important for us to discuss this, to recognize what we're actually doing, because now we see dimly, then we will see face to face. Now we see as in a haze, then we will see clearly. We want to begin to prepare ourselves for when we really understand what we're doing, because the act of communion is the single greatest act any of us can do, because it reflects on the single greatest event in the history of the world. And so as we have that all setting us up, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're going to begin, we're going to go a little bit uh, further in and then come back. We're going to start with verse 17. 1 Corinthians verse 17 and 18. Here's what Paul writes to the Corinth church. 
Now, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. And so Paul is writing to the Corinth church, and he's saying to the Corinth church, uh, I can't praise you the way I would like. I can't exalt you the way I would like because there are divisions amongst you, and these divisions are not led by the Spirit. They are led by the flesh. And so as we gather here, what we need to understand and what we need to recognize as we gather uh, on Sunday or Tuesday or Wednesday or whenever we gather, that we're doing this on purpose with a purpose. We don't gather here just so you can mark off you went to church on Sunday. We don't gather here just so you can mark on a, uh, a form, I'm a Christian because I go to church on Sunday. We don't gather here just so we can feel good about ourselves. We don't gather here just so we can tell our neighbor, I went to church today. We don't gather here for all those external things. We gather here because we truly believe that there is a God, singular, who created us, that we've been separated by sin, that he resolved that separation by the cross, and he calls us to worship him together. And when we gather here, we remind ourselves that we should be going to hell, but we are going to heaven because of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we don't understand that's the purpose, if we don't recognize that we are to dive deep into God's word because Christ has paid for us and we no longer are a slave to sin, we are no longer in the shackles of our rebellion, but we are in truth. And we are in life. And we gather with the purpose of knowing and loving God more so that we can love our neighbor so that they can love God as well. And so if we come together and we miss the purpose, what will happen is we will divide. Some will think, well, this is more important. Let's focus on this. Well, no, this is more important. Let's focus on that. My agenda is the thing that matters. My opinion is the most important. Instead of coming together and saying the single most important thing we're here for is to worship God because he has died and he was raised again and he has given us a mission. What is that mission? To be a disciple one who believes that Christ died on the cross, rose again, and is coming again. I need to be a disciple, and then I need to make disciples. I need to share that with my friends and family, neighbors, those who do not know the good news of Jesus Christ. And then we need to do that to every single person that we can, and that will not be accomplished until Christ returns. And so we must be committed to that calling. We must be committed to that mission. And when we gather here on Sunday, let's not mistake it for a room or even a style or any of those things that are superficial. The thing that truly matters is the mission, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ producing disciples of Jesus Christ. And this is what we're called to do is to remember these things. Remember the death. Remember the breaking of the body. Remember the blood. And remember the resurrection in return. And unfortunately, the Corinth church, because I'm sure there was many distractions, I'm sure there was lots of challenges, there was a division that had entered the church, and they were not singular in mind on what they were there for. They didn't have a singular purpose. They had a divided purpose. And so we need to guard against that because we're seeing how the enemy works. We're seeing how our enemy, the enemy of our father, the enemy of the son, is attacking his bride to try to destroy it. What does he do? He divides. He divides. Look at our country. You don't have to look very far to see how division destroys. It destroys and allows 
only the enemy to have victory. And so we gather on purpose with a purpose. Here's what he says are some of the issues in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 27 to 32. Is that So then, whoever eats this bread, and he's talking about taking communion, and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. Powerful, powerful truth here. One of the most amazing things about Scripture in my mind is that Jesus and and the Holy Spirit are very direct. They give us very clear information. Today, we're going to remember the death, burial, resurrection of Christ by taking communion, a piece of bread, and a cup with juice. Now, on the outside, for those who are not spiritually minded, that doesn't seem like a very big deal. But for those who are spiritually minded and have the eyes of Christ and the Holy Spirit is leading and guiding them, they begin to see this can lead to bad things in my life if I don't take this seriously. This can lead to problems if I don't recognize what I'm really doing. You see, there's a time in the infinite future where you may be able to look back on these moments and say, why didn't I take it seriously? Why did I not recognize? Why did I think? And I'm guilty. I'm the first to be guilty. Why was I so concerned about the economy and this and that and the problems of today and the problems of this world? And I put them on such a high level of importance of things I would put my focus on and not recognize the spiritual matters, which are so infinitely more important. You see, when you come to Christ, he changes your perspective. No longer are the things of this world the things that you concerned in your heart and your mind and keep you up at night. Now it's the things of God, the eternal things that matter. And so when I'm taking a piece of bread that represents Christ's body, am I really considering the fact that he allowed his body to be broken for mine, that one day I would be set free? Do I really consider the cup? That this is blood that now I no longer am going to be separated from God. Do I truly believe these things? Do I truly accept them in faith? Do they impact my life? Because faith without action is dead. And so if I, if I believe it, if I come here today and I say this bread is, is the, the gift that I could never give myself, this cup uh, is a promise that I could never promise myself, then tomorrow it needs to define me. And then Tuesday it needs to define me. And if there are things in my life that go against who this person is and what his Holy Spirit reveals, I need to deal with them immediately. I believe he says, do this as often as you gather because this is a refocusing of our hearts back to the right place. When I take it seriously, that this bread really means something, that this bread will have an effect, that this bread that I'm about to eat will have uh, an eternal effect in my life. 
This cup is not just some juice that somebody made. This is a reflection of the blood of Christ. And if I don't take this seriously, if I don't come to this place in an inward, deep, authentic, soul-searching attitude, if I take it lightly, the Holy Spirit, through Paul, says, many have fallen asleep, possibly died. Many are sick. Many a problem have come upon those who did not take this seriously. Because we live in a world that scoffs and laughs. To them, the cross is foolishness. But to us, it is the hope of eternity. That means when we talk about this topic and we come to communion, we take it at the highest level of severity that we can. Because it is the one thing that is the central thing that changes everything. So this morning, as we gather here, do we recognize any time I come to the table, if I do it out of routine, if I do it because I grew up doing it, if I do it because it's just everyone else is doing it, so I might as well do it too, that is a dangerous place to live. That is a dangerous place to be. Do I recognize the significance of this action? Do I recognize that we are never to take this lightly? We are never to take this as a routine or a ritual that doesn't have meaning. We need to be so careful. We're being, given, we're being given information to warn us. We're being given warnings. Are we hearing those warnings? I don't think it is too great to say that communion is the most significant ceremony we do. It's more, it's more significant in what it means than marriage and the wedding. It is more significant than a funeral. It is more significant even than baptism because without it, there is no baptism. It is the single most significant ceremony that I can do in life is, a rem is remembering Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection, his broken body, and his shed blood. Do I believe that today? Do we believe that today? This is where faith is called into question. This is where my faith has to be real. This is where you can't play games. You can't pretend here because God sees your heart. God knows who you really are. God knows what your motives are. God knows what your intent is. Do you take it serious? Do you believe it? And so here's what we're told. This is the information we're given so we can have depth of understanding when it comes to the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11.23 for I have received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Powerful, powerful passage. Without this information, we may not truly understand what communion meant and what it is intended to be. The first part of the, the verse says that it was the night in which he was betrayed. And if you know the 
the story of Christ and you know the chronological order. You have Judas, one of his 12. He sells out Christ and he meets him. And we're told in Mark 14, 44 through 46, his betrayer Judas had given them a signal. The one I kiss, he said, he's the one. Arrest him, take him away under guard. So that when he came, immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Rabbi, which means teacher, and he kissed him. And they took hold of him and arrested him. I don't think it's by chance that the Holy Spirit has placed into this that there was a rebellion. And he doesn't say Judas was going to do it at this moment. He says in the night in which he was betrayed. Because the truth of the matter is until we recognize that all of us have betrayed Christ. All of us have betrayed Christ. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we're not sinners, the truth is not in us. And we are calling Christ a liar. You and I, before I can be saved, have to repent of the fact that I was a traitor, that I had betrayed the Lord. Every moment of sin is a betrayal of God. Every time I intentionally say, my way is better than God's way. My path is a better path than God's path. Anytime I choose to sin, I am betraying Christ. And so as we come to communion, we need to recognize that sin is betrayal. God created a perfect place. He created this wonderful environment, and he said it is very good to Adam and Eve, and yet they were deceived by the serpent, and they betrayed God. And they said, there's a better way. Did he really say that? Should I really follow him? Maybe the world has a better answer. Maybe I should trust what men say. Maybe I should do what my heart tells me. Maybe I should do what my flesh says. Every time we choose to, to follow sin, we betray the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time I say yes to sin, I have kissed Jesus with a kiss of betrayal. So we need to recognize that on the night in which he was betrayed. It is an essential part of the story. Because without recognizing I am a sinner, what do I need a Savior for? Without recognizing the depth of my sin, it is hard to love Christ for paying for my sin. As we come to the Lord's table, as we come to communion, if we don't recognize the depth of pain we bring the Lord through our sin, then we truly don't understand the act of communion. Because the price is so high because the cost was so high. This morning, do we recognize that I have betrayed the Lord, you have betrayed the Lord, yet even in our betrayal, even when we have been enemies, he still chose to die for us. He still chose to say, I love you in spite of your betrayal. I love you in spite of your rejection. I love you enough to pay for your sin and to set you free. And so as we come to the table, I believe the first point that we are to recognize, is there any sin within me? Is there any betrayal in me that would keep my relationship with God? Christ at bay. It's interesting. This is the one thing he goes back to many times. He says, if you have a brother that's, that you have an issue with, go to them before you bring the sacrifice. Go to them and make things right. 
Make sure that you've dealt with your sin before you come here. Make sure that this is the place. Maybe you, you've let things go in your life. You've let some sin creep in. And right now the Holy Spirit's starting to show you what that is. And he's starting to massage that part of your soul. And he's saying, this is, this is the part I need you to deal with. This is the part I, I need you to not overlook anymore. The part that you got to pull out from under the rug. The part that I want you to understand is you need to deal with this. And as we've come together, one of the purposes is for us to be right with the Lord. That we would confess our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But sometimes we hold on to that sin and we love that sin and we nurture that sin and we invite that sin into other areas. And he's saying, don't do that. Don't, your friend, sin is not your friend, it is your enemy. Sin will only bring death. Sin will only bring destruction. Sin will only bring despair. He does it out of a love for us that he would deal with our sin. He says he only chastises those he loves. He corrects those that are his because he loves you so desperately. And he's saying, let it be forgiven so that you can be cleansed and moved on in your walk. As we come to communion, are we prepared to confess? Are we prepared to take inventory of our life? Are we prepared to be honest before the Lord and to open our hearts and say, search me and try me. Is there anything here that is rebellion and betrayal? Is there anything here that displeases you? If so, help me to know that I may confess it and that it may be taken from me, never to have power again. Secondly, he says that his body was broken. His body was broken. He allowed it so you could have a perfect body. He allowed his perfect body to be broken so you could have a perfect body. Exodus 6 tells us that the cup of redemption, or no, John 6, 51 says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give you for the life of the world is my flesh. Christ was tempted in every way that we were tempted. He was tempted in every aspect of sin that you and I are tempted, and he did not sin. And yet, he was brought before judgment that was unjust judgment, but he allowed it to happen anyway, because he knew that for us to have perfected bodies, for us to have regenerated bodies, for us to have eternal bodies that would be with him, he would have to let his perfectness be broken. That his body must be broken for us. His body must be uh, taken to the place our bodies deserve to go to. And so as we eat the bread, we're reminded of two things, I believe. We're reminded... If we could go back a slide, please. One more. We're reminded that he was giving them matzah. He was giving them unleavened bread. And as you see in the picture, uh, matzah today, it'll come in a sheet and you can get it uh, at any grocery store. It'll be striped and pierced. Isaiah says that he was striped and he was pierced for our transgressions. And the idea of leaven is leaven is sin. And here's this unleavened bread that they use at Passover. To this day, Jewish families, as they take a Seder, they have an unleavened piece of bread, and it is hidden. And there's something called the afikomen, and it's all a picture of Christ. But as we look at this, we see this bread that's perfected. Why? Because there's no leaven in it. There's no sin in it. And not only was there no sin in it, it was pierced, and it was striped as a representation 
that Christ must be pierced and striped for our brokenness. And so when we take the bread, it is a picture that is eternal. It is a picture of, of a much grander thing. It's not a bread itself. It's what the bread represents, the body of Christ. And as we take that bread in our hand, that physical piece of bread, do we recognize the spiritual truth of what that bread means? That bread is the body of Christ. That bread is a perfect, sinless person. Uh, God made flesh who is willing to die for us. Second, he takes the cup, a spiritual blood transfusion to be twice born. A spiritual blood transfusion. Exodus 6 says the, the cup that he has taken, the third cup, it's called the cup of redemption. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. An outstretched arm. Christ is redeeming us and he's saying to his disciples, this cup represents a new covenant. Here's the new commitment I'm making to you. Your physical blood will not save you. Your good works won't save you. All of us in this room have a heart that is pumping blood into our bodies. It keeps us physically alive. And the heart is essentially the throne. If the heart is dethroned, we are dead. But there's already a spiritual throne within us that is empty. It's empty, and we try to fill it, but we cannot. And maybe drugs and alcohol and addictions try to fill that throne, but they cannot. There's only one who can sit on that throne, is that's the Holy Spirit of God. And for that throne to be filled, we must confess and believe, and this blood transfusion, spiritual blood transfusion occurs, that when we receive Christ as Savior, the Holy Spirit, God in the Spirit, comes and dwells and places Himself upon that throne in our hearts. And when we drink that cup, it's a reminder that His blood is the reason. Now that blood spiritually flows through us. And it flows to that same most vital place, which is the Holy Spirit's throne in our life. And so this morning, do we recognize, do we recognize that the importance of the blood of Christ? Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of a creature is in its blood, and I have appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your life, since it is the blood, lifeblood, that makes atonement. A lifeblood makes atonement. Do you realize we've studied blood and we know how the white blood cells work and we've learned all these things, but we still really don't understand how blood can give us life, how it can take oxygen and move it around our bodies and, and perform all the amazing things. Do you realize how wondrous you've been made? But your physical creation doesn't even come close to the spiritual truth of Christ's holiness within you. And so when you take the cup, you're recognizing there is a spiritual blood. The Christ's blood has changed everything for everyone. It's changed everything for everyone who believes. You can't have it unless you get it. It's a gift. But you can't have it until you receive it by confessing and believing. And then finally, he says, this is going to proclaim me till I return. How many of you are looking forward to his return? How many of you are excited about the fact that the God of creation is coming back? Jesus is going to white, is riding on a white uh, horse coming back for his people. That he's going to set up a throne and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And all of this is going to pass away. No more sickness, no more pain. That the real reason we exist will come clearly into focus. He's saying, look, I understand your lives are full of pain and full of problems because sin is here. But one day sin won't be here anymore. And as we come together to eat the bread and drink the cup, let's not forget that he is the solution to the problem. 
If we miss that, we miss everything. It's not just that he died for our sin. It's not just that his body was broken. He did this for purpose, and that purpose is eternal redemption, eternal glorification that he's going to do in those that are his. And this is what it says, and I read this at funerals, and I hope this stirs us, and it moves us. John 14, 1 through 4, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. It's a much better mansion than any of us can imagine. If it were not so, would I have not told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? If I go away to prepare a place for you, guess what? I'm going to come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. That where I am, you may be also. I am coming again to bring you with me. I'm coming back to take you as my own. We remember the death, burial, resurrection because we remember something that happened that changed the world like nothing else. And we look forward to something that will change everything like nothing else, the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is our hope. This is the purpose of us doing this and remembering this and coming together and, 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 and worshiping the God of truth because he has died, rose again, and is coming again. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that he is going to return? Are you willing to proclaim him until he returns? Are you willing to shout from the top of your roof, Jesus is coming back? The king is returning. All is not lost because we were lost. We have been set free because he died for our sins. This morning, do you believe that? I think one of the things that we're called here to do is to make that decision. Do I believe this? Do I believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do I believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life? Do I believe that he has set me free from sin? Do I believe that he's coming to take me home to be with him eternally? Do I believe there is a heaven of perfection that he's calling me and taking me to? Do I really believe that? Well, then I don't want to forget how important it is. I don't want to forget what this is all about. Questions to consider. Do you take the Lord's Supper seriously? Is it something you grew up with? Is it something, well, the church does it, so I'll do it? Or is it something more than that? How seriously do you take the Lord's Supper? Let me ask you a question. Moments before your death, you look back on your life. And you look back at those moments when God allowed you to take the Lord's Supper. What do you want to remember about those moments? Do you want to look back and say, well, I just didn't take it too serious? Or do you want to look back and say, every time God put me in the blessing of being able to remember, I used my mind, I used my soul, and I focused on him the best of my ability. If there's a few areas in life that I don't want to miss out on, this is one of those. I don't want to end my life and God say, what did you do with communion, the thing I told you to do regularly? How did you approach that? Why were you so, why was college football so important, but the communion so unimportant? Why was checking your phone so important? And you would go crazy if you didn't have Wi-Fi. But communion was just another thing. It didn't matter. 
hmm, how seriously do I take this? Is it real in my life? Right now, are you prepared to take the Lord's Supper? Have you come to the Lord and said, yes, I recognize my betrayal. I recognize my sin. Please search me and try me. Help me to confess sin. Are you ready at this moment to come to the Lord and to recognize his sacrifice for you? Is Jesus your Lord and Savior? Have you been born twice? Are you twice born? Are you spiritually alive today? Have you been filled with the Holy Spirit of God on the throne of your life? Do you know that you know that he's yours and you're his and that the moment you die, you'll be separated in this life, but you'll be uh, one with the Lord. You'll be in his presence. Do you truly believe that the moment when the, when the trumpet, the shofar, announces the return of Christ, that your body will be resurrected and you'll get a new body and you'll be with the Father in his home eternally? Do you truly believe that today? Is that truly who you are? Is that truly defining you as a person? Is your identity built in that or something else? This is what communion causes us to reflect on. Do you need forgiveness for sin? Do you need to forgive someone today? Is there something in your heart that stirs? I believe the reason most don't have a passion for the Lord is because they have unconfessed sin in their life, and unconfessed sin can never allow passion. Unconfessed sin is a, is a block. It says, do not quench the Holy Spirit. You know how you quench the Holy Spirit in your life? You know how you get disconnected and it doesn't, you don't hear anything, you don't feel anything, you don't have any experience with the Lord because you have unconfessed sin in your life. Today, are you willing to say, Father, search me and try me, see if there's anything in me that I need to confess? And so as we come to this place of communion, first I believe we need to consider the cross. What did that really mean to you? What did that really mean to me? Do I really believe this to be true? Secondly, I believe all of us, if you're a believer, should thank Jesus for his sacrifice. Have a heart of gratitude, recognizing he did something we could not do. He paid a price we could not pay. Thirdly, confess sin and seek forgiveness. I could say it a thousand times, but it's the one thing I need to hear. It's the one thing you need to hear. Sin is a stumbling block. Sin is a disease. Sin is the thing that separated us from God in the beginning, and it separates us today. I need to confess that sin so I can have the forgiveness that's needed to walk with the Lord today. I need to ignore the flesh and focus on the Spirit. We got to stop letting our flesh dictate to us our life. We got to stop telling, uh, letting the flesh be the one that leads the way. We got to say, flesh, you're not in charge. The Holy Spirit of God is in charge. He's leading the way. Whether it's my talk, my, my viewpoints, my actions, it's the Holy Spirit that leads those things. Today, in this moment, what is the Lord saying to you? What is God telling you? What is he placing upon your heart?